Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. Today, I'm here with Russell Case. Hello. And our very dear friends, Spiros and Erica, are joining us from New Mexico today. Hi, guys. Hi. Oh, hey. Aw, thank you for having us. Wonderful to be with you both. Very much. Well, I know that you, before we started, you said that you'd really like to do an opening invocation. And we're very, uh, we're very excited to have you do that for us, if you could. Yeah, um... We usually do these type of things in order to create a boundary between the space that we'll share and our regular day realities. And then uh, it can be anything. In this case, it will just be a short ohm and some audio. And then uh, then we can just imagine ourselves, visualize an audio feel the space. So let's do that. Please. Sounds great. Um, There's a quote from Heraclitus that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's been returning. Whoever cannot seek the unforeseen sees nothing. For the known way is an impasse. Let's begin. Ohm. Hello. Hello. That was tra- transportational. Yeah, was I felt fantastic. super transported. Yeah, I mean, in this sense, it's a sacred space, but it's also casual, like the chai shop. So it's a space mm-hmm. that uh, we can hang out in and reflect and share. And we are, in fact, yeah. sitting here with chai. Happy to be in the virtual chai shop with you. Fantastic. Where Where are you guys right now? Are you Are you in... We're in New L- Mexico. They in said the they LA. were in New Mexico. In, you're in, in Taos? <laughs> what is a Taos? <laughs> we're in Taos, New Mexico right now. Taos happens to be home of the uh, oldest continuously uh, inhabited building in North America, the Taos Pueblo. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's also home to Taos Mountain. So um, it's in Pueblo, northern New Pueblo. Mexico. Yeah. 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 And we're here hunkering you on, You're hunkering down for the holidays, the high <laughs> holy days. We're hunkering down for the space between uh, what led up to the uh, elections, <laughs> and we'll continue <laughs> on until uh, after the elections. And, you know, it's also 
uh, here for Jupiter-Saturn conjunct, and we're still in uh, Kalsarpa in the middle of the uh, the serpent, all the planets being on one side uh, between mm. Rahu and Ketu, which will be until, continue more or less until uh, April or May. So we just figured everything's sort of shut down. We're already in a sort of reflective mode culturally and you know around the world in some way various waves and various pockets but la you know the u.s uh california and la in particular all terrible (laughs) 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 in the covid yeah if you don't have to be there why be there right (laughs) yeah yeah we um it's a it's an odd time to have a, a physical yoga space, um, so we don't we're we're all virtual right now. Um, so yeah. like you said, we can sort of take it on the road, and it's been wonderful to be able to continue to teach, even though of course we can't gather together in person at the moment. Yeah, I'm sure you also experience the same thing, where now you have people from all over the world tuning in to your classes and uh, what you're sharing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, actually. It's it's really, in some ways, uh, very rewarding to be able to connect with people on the other mm-hmm. side of the planet. Yeah, um, where that was wasn't really. I mean, it was. I guess it was an option, but it wasn't being utilized for sure. So, yeah, absolutely. It feels like a a silver lining to obviously what's a really devastating situation. Um, mm-hmm. You're in Taos, and you arrived there from L.A., where the two of you have have a a center together that is is now because of COVID. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the doors are closed. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us how maybe how you how you came to be in L.A. and then how why did you decide on on Taos? Um. I lived for 10 years in Taos uh, in the 90s, um, and that's where I first decided to get in touch with and try some yoga, mostly because I felt disembodied with my uh, world. I was spending a lot of time just doing psychedelics and also uh, doing computer uh, programming, and oh. I felt disembodied. And so I wanted something. I figured sex would be great, but it's unreliable. Yes. <laughs> in terms of regular but in physically but physically embodying <laughs> yeah but physically embodying. As I, people have said that to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh los angeles was a choice um for both erica and myself separately in essence um and erica asked me to reflect that uh Part of the idea of Los Angeles, I mean, Los Angeles ended up being a place where there were pockets of people doing things that fit outside of the mold. So there were still people that um, could find a place at that point for under $1,000 a month and be a single mom or dad and have a creative life, but also be doing stuff for gigs for money as well. And so Mm -hmm. there were people that could do that intellectually, people that were doing that creatively in art, people that were doing that 
um, psychically, magically, sexually, uh, in various ways of being, there were people there that uh, were excited about it and would gather. So that was exciting. You know, ways to think about different ways to think about money uh, and culture. It's very much a city of dreamers, you know, a city of um, people who believe in often themselves, which, you know, for better or for worse, <laughs> but they also believe in, you know, in the creative spark. In the dream to some degree, whatever yeah. that might be. In some sense of magic, in some sense of possibility. So that's inspiring. That's the extra spark uh, that was uh, beautiful. And, and when I had my stroke, uh, which was sort of a, uh, we just call it a stroke because it's simpler to refer to it, but it was also a spiritual experience in a sense. And at one point during it, um, I was dead. The world was dark. I was in that space. It wasn't a cold space. It was actually very warm and relieving and comforting and holding. And in that space um, appeared suddenly. I was thinking to myself, good riddance. That was really fucking hard. That was a difficult <laughs> space. Um, that world of earth and stuff. And uh, I'm actually really relieved to be done with it. And uh, and then I started to see little 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 flickers of light, like fireflies, and more of them would start appearing. And and all I felt and knew at that point was those were beings of light, and that was all the beings I knew, human and non-human alike. And they were people, things, entities that actually loved and loved me and shared with me that love. And I just was overcome with joy. And uh, I realized at that point that what I was brought here to do and why I'm here now isn't for any of the things that I thought I was here for when I came into that space. It's actually to share light with beings. And oh, so at that, point, <laughs> at that point, at that point, I didn't know really what to do. You know, I was sitting at sort of this... Uh, lovely and strange uh, post-guru uh, community in Santa Fe. But I was sort of, you know, with just with hanging out with them. And I was like, you know, I want to engage more with beings. And I looked to my history, and my history was a lot of yoga. And so um, one thing led to another, and we ended up, I thought, Los Angeles is a good place for this, a good way, place to hold space and share light with beings mm -hmm. that's that's an incredible story and i'd, I'd like to to dig more into it uh, if if you would though i i wonder if we could introduce you a bit more to our our listeners they have a a sense of of context for who you are and how things like a like uh computer programming or or a stroke might have occurred and how um Someone like Erica makes a choice to, to move down to L.A. to live with a being like Spiro. <laughs> um, Erica, maybe you could start. Uh, you, were, you were one of the chosen people. Uh, you were born a, a Jewish child. Is that correct? It's a little more complicated than that. Um, my Oh, it is? Yeah. <laughs> my father is... Your mom's Jewish? My mom is not Jewish. Um, oh, 
therein. Yeah. So, <laughs> so therein lies the complication. Yeah. So my yeah, wow. my father is Jewish, and his um, his ancestors are from the Ukraine. His family mm-hmm. they fled to the U.S. Um, you know, from the pogroms happening in the Ukraine, and um, they landed in Philadelphia. Um, my mom's side of the family is Christian, um, and my mom did convert to Judaism, but not until I was two years old. So I was already born, and I was born oh. a non-Jew, technically, yeah, according to the most Orthodox. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, and, um, I'm not going to... Continue the conversation. <laughs> yeah, we already pretended Tim Feldman was Jewish, so oh, yeah, and anything but goes. He, yeah, anything I'm goes. Not, I'm not confident that he's not Jewish. But go, just continue. Yeah. So yeah, so my my father's side of the family was Jewish. My mother converted, um, and some of my mom's family when we were growing up, they were actually born-again Christians, and so they were convinced, you know, that we were going to hell for being Jewish, and um, Mm. they tried to get us to be Jews for Jesus, because then at least... At least we believe in Jesus. At least we wouldn't be going to hell. So, yeah, so it's sort of um, heathenness on on both sides, right? I wasn't born a Jew, and um, I wasn't Christian enough for the for the Christians. So, yeah, I'm home in that. Yeah. Satan probably feels exactly the same way in his heart that he's neither here nor there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The in between the liminal, and there's something really beautiful in that space. That's one of our primary um, spaces that we think about in the yoga and in you know sharing what we do online is those sort of liminal spaces in between that aren't categorized but are sort of transient, mm. like the journey of life. <laughs> mm. I'm really enjoying this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm supposed to kind of stay on the line of questioning, but at certain points, I just want to bask in it. Um, <laughs> so, how did you leave? How did you end up in the Bay? Because I I know you from other work, Eric, uh-huh. and, I, and I know you from the Bay Area, yeah. uh, working with yoga and kids. But uh, I, you strike me as being from there. Uh, but your family's from Philadelphia. Uh, I was born in Boston, and then we we lived in Philadelphia for a little while, and we moved out to California to the Bay Area when I was twelve. So oh, you're neither again, here not nor there. Again. Not quite there. <laughs> you grew up in the Bay Area, though. <laughs> yeah, a you lot were of probably all enough though at that point. I'm sorry. Old enough. You were old probably enough. already your full height though. Oh. <laughs> I was pretty little growing up, actually. I, I don't know that I was my full height by the time I was 12. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, it's just growing up between the coasts. Um, uh, but, I, yeah, I, I feel like uh, I'm from the Bay Area, you know, grow, growing up there since I was 12. I went to college in the Bay Area. I went to the University of California, Berkeley. Um, I spent most of my years, you know, from the time I was 12 onward in and around the bay so i feel she very much at home there grew up though in palo alto sort of being a rebel against her parents who were uh computer scientists and uh, uh. and so she has this attraction repulsion to the com- computer world and to media in general but less media more just like 
uh, engineering. Uh, but she yeah, has very knowledgeable of it too. Wow. I don't that's know. Such a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> because that sounds something very similar to, to your story, um, for an attraction mm-hmm. to, to engineering exactly. and a repulsion from it. Yeah. Um, before we, before we, we speak more to that, though, um, if I could just ask another question to Erica. Um, uh, did, you, did you also follow your parents into, into engineering at, at Berkeley? I did not. Uh, Was contemplative practice a a draw for you at that age? What were you doing? It was, yeah. I started a yoga practice and a contemplative practice when I was a teenager. And so by the time I was at Berkeley, that was definitely a threat. You know, it was part of the rhythm of my days. Um, When I was at Cal, I was practicing with Vance. Um, Oh. Oh, my goodness. I've slept with Vance many times oh. <laughs> and, and I have the pleasure of like, he's got the biggest warmest butt. And so if you're cold <laughs> in the night, you want to take his bottom and just bring it into your bosom and hold it. Oh, there. I, I didn't know that new, yeah. new fact about Vance. Yeah. 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 He'll, uh, he won't deny it. <laughs> but he was so, he was so wonderful. You know, he really helped me keep a rhythm and a steadiness um, throughout throughout my school life, which wasn't linear. Um, but he was always so wonderful. You know, he was one of those teachers that if I didn't show up for a couple days or a week or two at a time, he'd say, "I know you're busy with school, but I think it would be great if you, you know, came a, came on in just for a sun salutation." You know, he really kept mm. me sort of um, he he made me feel seen and like what I was doing, um, mattered. Like I was part of, part of a community that, um, that wasn't, that was holding me, right. That was holding me and encouraging me. Um, and that meant a lot. Did that feel, did that feel important to you? Did you feel like you were disconnected as you'd said, and that was unifying? I think just the rhythmicity and the community, um, was so important. I don't know that I felt disconnected per se, but, um, I have a tendency to be very in my head, you know, so as a university student, you know, going to classes and writing papers, it was very easy for me to get lost in my head and lost in that world of intellect. Um, and so it was really great to have that embodied practice as well. I mean, not dissimilar from what Spiro said. I'm, I'm also a very embodied person, but it's easy for me to forget (laughs) <laughs> you're also taught in body practices at a very young age yeah yeah how so yeah that's amazing to be introduced to these techniques when you're a teenager yeah it was such a gift um to receive those practices when i was really young and um and yeah how did that happen yeah the yoga project <laughs> how did it happen how was i introduced to yoga yeah. Now I started teaching at, at prisons at 18. <laughs> so I was an athlete growing up, and um, throughout high school, because we'd moved to the West Coast, uh, where the sports were different for, for girls. So back East, I played field hockey and lacrosse, and out West, they didn't have lacrosse for girls. They had lacrosse for boys. And they didn't have field hockey. So I jumped in the water and I became a swimmer and a diver and a water polo player. Um, 
And once I was, you know, moving into, once I, you know, was 17, 18, starting to think about college, I, I wanted to continue being in my body in that really, um, close, intimate, felt way. And so a handful of um, my fellow water polo players and I, we all walked into um, Yoga Source. I believe it's on Hamilton Avenue in Palo Alto. I don't know if any of your listeners know Yoga Source. And one of the teachers there, he still teaches to this day, Johnny. um, And he, he led this class and that was it. I was just, it was, it was such a beautiful way to be in my body in a way that wasn't about the competition of a sport, which I loved, but also was, you know, filled with a lot of pressure and came with a lot of other connotations. Um, and so I was, I, I started practice, you know, at a young age and, and I had, um, Spiro's egging me on over here. He's, he's asking me to. <laughs> Get to the prison. <laughs> so my first year. That's, that's, really, that's, that's <laughs> kind of how I, I think, uh, we met, though I think we might've probably met doing, doing yoga and Ashtanga yoga with, with, with Sharat, but we, we, had, we were very fortunate to bring you in to train the, the teachers that we had in the schools mm. on how to work with, um, say, kids who come out of a Title I environment and, um, you know, are transitioning their lives into the prison system. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it was an honor to, to be with you and your team. Uh, so I, I started yoga young, and then I... In my first year of college, I took a course called um, Teaching in the Prisons. And I went into prisons and taught spoken word and poetry to incarcerated boys. And I just fell in love with this work and with these incredible beings um, who weren't so different from myself. They just had different life experiences and, frankly, different skin color. And um, it was just so moving and so touching. And that became really my my passion. And I started working with the Art of Yoga Project um, when I was, I think, 20, 20 years old. So you weren't, you weren't a founder, I wasn't a founder. No, I was just a, an early teacher, one of the one of okay. their first teachers. Yeah. And I don't know that they would have hired a 20-year-old, you know, these days, but at the time, it, you know, prison justice wasn't something that was talked about in the same way that it's talked about today in criminal justice. Um, and so, you know, I had experience teaching in the prisons and I um, had, you know, minimal experience in yoga, but had found a home there. And, um, and so that was it. And, and I think, you know, just being close in age to the kids that I was teaching, I worked with primarily 12 to 18 year old girls, um, in San Francisco and Bay area juvenile justice centers and rehabilitation centers. And I ended up working with them for over 10 years. So I kind of grew up with them. Well, it it meant a a lot to me my dad was was taught yoga and painting in prison really? in Leavenworth, and it, and it, wow. he brought that home to me, and I and so I grew up doing yoga and painting with my dad, which is mm. pretty much all, still all I do, and so I think that um, <laughs> that that's that that gets ignored. I think the rehabilitation piece is 
gets ignored with the punishment piece. It absolutely does. Yeah. And I, I was pretty surprised, you know, that in an area so supposedly liberal as the Bay Area, that their justice system was so punitive, especially towards children. And it's changing. It, it And it has changed. Um, you know, one of the the centers that I primarily worked at is is closed permanently, um, which is excellent. Wow. They're moving towards group homes rather than incarceration. Um, and, and that's really wonderful, you know, working towards mental health care, looking at the, um, the various pipelines that boys and girls experience on their way to prison, um, sort of looking at the circumstances rather than the, the symptoms, right? Looking at the circumstances mm-hmm. of their lives rather than the behavior that we call bad. So a lot has shifted and we've learned so much, um, you know, in the last almost two decades, but, um, at the time it, it, it was really, um, it, it took a lot for us actually to, to be able to go in and teach yoga, art and meditation. Um, we were not welcomed by the, the facility at first, you know, we sort of had to earn our keep, um, and prove prove our worth, um, which we did over time, obviously, but I think that's part of the most phenomenal piece of the work that that we that we did, uh, Eric and I. And I'm going to put myself in the same basket uh, yeah. of trying to bring yoga and contemplative practice into educational circles. Yeah, is it's so different to go into a room where where people resent you as you walk in, mm. where 95 percent of the people there are openly hostile and critical of you and then then try and win that room over Mm. it's so different from when people come to you you know and say if you know like norman allen coming to guruji he's an eager student he's there he's begging to learn but when you walk into um a um whether it's a an an institution a correctional institution or you walk into um, a, uh, a, 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 what are those teacher conferences called where they do training, where they teach teachers how to teach? Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> developmental day. Yeah, yeah, d- yeah, developmental day. When you walk, yeah. It's a very similar group of people, actually. But um, the, <laughs> the correctional institution and the, and the teacher development days. But um, <laughs> It's a fine line between uh, <laughs> and uh, public elementary school. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Especially, you know, in some of the areas that you were working in, Russell. Yeah, it's it's a the Stanford Prison Project is a good model of, of you go one way, you go into one room and you're like this, you go into the other room, you're like that. And um, you know what was interesting though, what I found, you know, I I definitely had to sort of. Um, I don't want to say prove myself. There was a lot of humility just showing up, you know, in these spaces where I do have the ability to come and go, right? And these yeah. these um, kids primarily who I'm working with are locked up. You know, they are there. Um, and, and at first there was that sort of what you're speaking to, that sort of hostility. But because I was in there so often, I really, you know, developed long-term relationships. Um, and even if uh, kids were coming and going through uh, 
from the institution, there was usually at least one person who knew me, you know, and I had an in, right? So it was like, oh yeah, she's cool. She gets a pass, you know? And what I found was that they were so desperate, right? They have nothing. They're locked up. They have had their social lives taken away from them. They'd had everything they know, their school, their diets, their communities, their parents taken away from them. Sometimes their kids taken away from them. And they were so grateful for an hour of freedom, right? An hour where they could be in their bodies, an hour where they could be out of their heads, out of the prison of their minds, right? And that's the same thing that we want on the outs, you know? And I think that sometimes um, that almost felt freer to me. It almost felt um, like the, the population that I was working with in prison was more open, you know, because they don't have ideas about what yoga are. They're not paying you to get their money's worth, you know? Um, they're there because they want to get out of their cells, <laughs> you know, and move their bodies. Um, and I find that sometimes, frankly, a yoga studio can be a more hostile place. <laughs> yeah. the, need, the need is so great that that the response rises up to... Yeah. Because the need is so great. Yeah. Yeah, And because these are really incredible tools, right? I mean, like you Mm -hmm. said, Russell, you still paint and do yoga. Like these are the seeds. These are the really powerful tools that we all know work. Um, Sometimes we, you know, I think we've been doing it so long that we forget how powerful they are. I mean, desire itself is its own sort of pull. And that's really what takes us through the journey in some ways. I was just reading in uh, Henry Corbin's uh, uh, Mundus Imaginalis, Mm -hmm. he tells the stories, and he's basically telling stories of the uh, imaginative faculty in uh, in Persian uh, literature of, uh, of that cognitive ability of using the mind, and they talk about angels and angelology. And the angels don't have a space like we have. It's like called a nowhere, but the no non-space space doesn't, you don't have to travel by foot. I mean, with your sense organs, you travel by desire and resonance in shared spaces of the heart, of the soul Mm -hmm. that you're, that you're feeling. And those feelings is, are the journey and the shared space are the cities Mm -hmm. in that imaginal faculty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how important the imagination is, you know, for us as beings. Painting and doing yoga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's incredible because I, I feel like one of the things that you get with, with people who are attracted to Ashtanga Yoga is a group of people who have, as a, as a community or as, a, as our culture, is a, a group of people who have come face-to-face with the prison that is reality. Mm-hmm. and that there's no escaping it. And so wh- how am I going to get out of here? Yeah. How am I going to manage this now? Because I fundamentally understand that I'm in the same, that I'm in this, I'm incarcerated in the same way as I would be if I was in, in Leavenworth or, or Lexington in some facility. And I, I'm going to die here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's so much of, you know, what brought both of us 
to the practice, you know, and, and almost the practice as a space of resistance, right? And I think that's, um, that's what inspired me to, to continue working in the prisons because I think that the practice can be this place of resistance where we resist the prisons of our minds, we resist the prisons of the social system of which we're a part, you know, of the capitalist system that attempts to flatten us, you know. And I think it really can be this powerful point of, um, yeah, I, I don't know that you didn't use this word, Russell, but a, a point of escape, a point of um, mm-hmm. enlightenment, right? Yeah. <laughs> On its best days. <laughs> I mean, through its rhythm, through, it becomes a scaffolding, a sort of membrane yeah. from which... Uh, other things that we've been resisting, that we've been holding up, can be let go of and relaxed. But I do think it's a pretty revolutionary thing, you know, to to say I'm gonna I'm gonna step into my body, I'm gonna step into my mind, and really take a look around here at what's going on. You know, what is influencing it, what's happening in here. I think that's not taught, you know, very often, and I think yeah. it. It can be um, just so empowering and so revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a way, it's even resisting the uh, prisons of our bodies, you know, as we're trying to go beyond what, you know, normal human capacities yeah. will be, right? We're yeah. exploring yeah. what is possible. Yeah, it's exploring the limits, exploring the bounds, exploring, like Spiro said, sort of the, the, scaffolding that are limits but that also open up creative spaces i mean the body is a sort of memory bank as we know so that whatever it's less about having like transcending like one mimicry mimesis of what the pose looks like to another but more about discharging our own structural like grasping and fear and all those other aspects of ourselves that we you know, define ourselves with. Mm -hmm. And so yoga and the practice of it allows for a space for that to be different. And Mm -hmm. we don't, you know, we didn't come here with a set of ideas about, you know, I mean, we may have now that it, now that yoga has a lot of ideas surrounding it, but we come to it also as a place to lay down our, our arms and lay down our, what we're wearing and just like, practice and meet ourselves struggle with ourselves yeah and that in itself is the is the greatest gift Mm -hmm. um to have a space where that can actually happen without uh anything attached to it ultimately it's always been my sort of like yeah the buddhist will sit and stare at a white wall for Mm -hmm. a decade or two and in the same way, it takes that long that long to actually, you know, unpeel to have yeah. the onion sort of peel away a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Spiro, I think that's that's fantastic. I, that's actually how I met you. Is is that um, in the Puck Building in New York, in one of Batabi Joyce's or Guruji's tour stops, um, you were giving a gift. You know, you were handing out uh, chai, and I, and I, I've, it's just very uh, incised into my memory to see you sitting there with your your little beard and, <laughs> and uh, 
is fantastic. I, I, can you tell us a little bit how you came to be sitting in that chair at those tour stops with, with Patabi Joyce? Really, it was uh, the towers falling in 2001 in New York um, mm-hmm. on Sarah Swati's birthday. It comes back to Taos, actually. Yeah, Taos actually is has the Hanuman Temple here, the Neem Kroli Baba Ashram. And uh, I have a few friends mm-hmm. here who... Uh, make chai and would hold chai shop on their own, but it was all around the the temple scene here. Um, and I was in New York, and I had a friend that had also moved to New York. Um, and basically, the towers fell down. I was already in conversation with my friend. I was like, maybe we should open up a chai shop or just serve chai on the street. And then when the towers fell, it was clear that, um, you know, we were doing what we could to like go beyond barriers to get to a room to practice yoga. Um, You know, people are crying, losing loved ones. It smells like, you know, rotting flesh and, you know, Mm -hmm. aerosol and the air and dust. And, uh, but we're still showing up. I think the day after we didn't, but the day after that we did. And, um, and it was a joy. It was like something that we could do to be together and to, mourn but also just show our livelihood our life together uh during this transitory time um and then at the end of that towards the end of that time uh you know patabi joyce was in town in new york for a month at that point and uh eddie was like uh yeah we're having a gathering at the puck building and uh he was like or I said, who's making the chai? Obviously, I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. together. Uh, and he said, you make chai? And I said, yeah. But I was kind of lying out of my teeth, lying through my teeth. Or some sort of backward time <laughs> causality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nonetheless, I left a little conversation. I had to call my friend. I was like, okay, now I have to make chai. <laughs> so we had to go out and buy like 10-gallon uh, yeah. pots. And, you know, 10 and a 12 gallon pot on, on a Bowery. Uh, and uh, we walked, we made chai and walked it over like five or six blocks to the Puck building, boiling hot. And that was the first yeah. time. That was the first time that I, I had made it. We had made it. And uh, we served tea to the community of people that gathered for that sort of collective yeah. morning. And, um, and then Eddie was like, hey, do you want to make top chai at the, at the school? Yeah. <laughs> you, you and your girlfriend can come for free, and you can keep whatever money you make. And I was like, perfect. I was looking wow. for it. I was also doing some tech stuff on the side, but uh, that was part of the transition. So at that point is how um, that sort of inter- intermediary space sort of got uh, embedded in me. It's like um, the smell of, ch- of, of ginger. Mm. Uh, people yeah. would come, you know, attached to just coming to Eddie's because they'd smell the ginger when they got there and they'd get the reward of chai at the end. And it was sort yeah. of this this little chai shop spot was like the in-between spot between like after you've practiced, but before your day begins, right. before you go on into yeah. your regular life, you know, you yeah. have a cup of chai. And in that time, there's a little um, bookstore there of all the tantras and, and samitas and, and 
yoga sutras and various texts that I, I would just read. And that's sort of how I cut my teeth and all that and met New York City people. You're not from New York, then. You're actually, are you from New Mexico? I'm from West Virginia. No. I'm, 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 a, I'm a hillbilly. Yeah, I grew oh up. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Are you, was there like a, like a Greek Orthodox hillbilly community? There is. I mean, we were in Athens, Ohio. It's, it's where I was born in West Virginia, but I was raised in Ohio, in Athens, Ohio, and Athens just Greeks went to because it sounded Greek. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Wow. And were your parents born hillbillies as well, or did they move there to become hillbillies? Uh, my, I'm a, I'm a first-generation Greek, so second generation, second generation. So my parents were born here, but they're, but my grandparents were all born in yeah, second generation. My grandparents mm-hmm. were born in Greece. Uh, okay. And so. I'm, conf- I'm a little confused. How do you actually say your name? Because I thought you were Spiros, I think, until this week. And people, I kind of think, I think his name, I think his name's Spiro Harmony. Oh. It's both. Yeah, it's both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How can two things be different, or one thing be both? Two different things. <laughs> I can <think> multitudes. Yeah. <laughs> I contradict myself very well. Then I contradict myself. I'm vast. I multitudes. Yeah. All and things I, are contained within you, and you are also all things. All mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we are. I mean, and and uh, there's a plurality of identities that we have in various roles uh, in our life and our community. I'm sure that Harmony is very different as a mom in that sort of LARP. And uh, <laughs> apparently, I'm very bossy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but we yeah we have different you know we have different personalities depending on our context. In fact, we're largely a reflection of our environment. In that sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. so yeah, that's amazing. And does that then your environment then change when you're called Spiro or Spiros? <laughs> I think I, I generally I go by Spiro verbally, and um, unless it's it's more formal in Greek. In Greek, uh, OS is sort of a masculine noun. Most OS, OS, most masculine nouns end in in an OS, so mm-hmm. it's just. Part of that, and I. Uh, but growing up American Greek or American, it always meant a plurality. And so, uh, yeah. I used to. I used to in college mostly sign with the S in parentheses. <laughs> 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 so I was a parenthetical. Uh, 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 uh. So, in, wait, did you go to college in Ohio? Yeah, in Ohio University. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. You're a Buckeye. Of course, you're a Buckeye of all well, things. I, and did Buckeye you... was in Columbus, and I did live in Columbus, but uh, I went to Athens, Ohio, which is uh, okay. a, a smaller school. Okay. And you studied engineering? And... My, uh, my degree is uh, a self designed study called. Uh, Quantum yogurt, a relative and uncertain study of active culture. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for the first years of a self-designed 
study, yeah. That's a rich broth is what that is. Um, I feel like you've been doing that ever since. Yeah, that's been my life's work. That's the... (coughs) Yeah. I so this is probably uh, 1986 uh, to 90. Yes, this is, is it? college years. Yes, is that when you is were that right? it exactly? Did I get it exactly right? You got it exactly right. You're That's good. incredible. Okay, you're good, you're good Russell. Keep Sorry. it up. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. So 86 to 90. I also kind of imagine you're um, immersing yourself in a bath of acid. Um, acid yeah acid actually changed my life and and uh gave me a voice um early on and yeah it was weird i was in the suburbs of cleveland and um we sought it out a lot i i i was just appalled when i first actually heard the grateful dead after hearing reading so much about lsd um and then hearing it it just sounded like jangly hillbilly music which i was sort of (laughs) yeah that's right yeah yeah tony um speaking of hillbilly music i just want to say an r.i.p to tony price who Mm. who is a guitar player on the pizza tapes for uh david grissom and and jerry garcia really Mm. sad about that today but uh, but go on from the hillbilly stuff we just saw jerry garcia in uh invasion of the body snatchers he plays the banjo player. Are you fucking kidding me? It's no. It's really beautiful. It's, it's actually an excellent very, film. Very psychedelic, paranoid, takes place in San Francisco in the late 70s. Very worth visiting or revisiting. Yeah. Because I just showed our kid the trailer because we're trying to teach him about the show, Stranger Things, and where all these references come from. I said, uh, look, Jed, this third season, this is all about the invasion of the body snatchers with the great Canadian. Um, you must because pods are a big part of it. And, yeah. and we're, yeah. It left us with wrestling with, you know, like you can definitely see how the paranoia lives on in today's uh, political environment. Um, sure. And, and, you know, back in the seventies, there was a clear us versus them, the individual versus the, the collective, you know, the churning, you know, uh, gingerbread house people uh, that go to work every day and blah, blah, blah. And this was sort of against that in a way. But, it, you know, it doesn't take into account um, the hyper-normalization Adam, Adam Curtis. Adam Curtis's uh, whole critique of that whole culture. He critiques mm-hmm. Patty Smith saying that, you know, basically the, uh, you know, glorification of ourselves and our own quest just sort of was the seeds of capitalism and marketing to the individual. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, in some sense nowadays, we kind of want a collective force. We want the, the us in our uh, political voices and so Invasion of the Body Snatchers was sort of wrestling with that. We were wrestling with it, even though it was a great film. We were so entertained. And enjoyed <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Because I, I had heard this recently, and, and I think that really is a, is a wonderful articulation of the, of, the, of the thesis, that Trumpism has its birth in Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin's um, 
you know, guerrilla theater and anti-establishment and in, intense critical paranoia of the establishment that that come coming out of that is a uh, rebellion at any information that appears credible and th- that kind of community can be easily easily swayed and i and i and i imagining these you know tens of hundreds of thousands of baby boomers who you know who are critical anti-establishment baby boomers um have grown up to be trumpists mm. yeah um the uh We've been spending a lot of time on the uh, LARPing, live action role playing uh, part of like QAnon and sort of what that has to do with. Um, I mean, that's the foundation of QAnon. I mean, if you actually do the research, uh, yeah. you'll see that uh, there was a group of people, some of which I'm friendly with, so a lot of them are in the Bay Area, of people that started making money with from cell phone companies that were creating. Uh, imaginal role-playing games to play with your phone early on when cell phones were new. And um, that became, that sort of idea got picked up when they saw all the mistakes people were making in believing, you know, it's very much like War of the Worlds type thing where people have this sort of, they couldn't, they lost sight of what's real. And so that exploited by the military and by military forces um propaganda and so then QAnon came in and sort of plays to that precisely which is why a lot of yoga teachers acid heads or people that don't really have viveka deeply implanted um get swept away in the fervor Mm -hmm. of that sort of shared vitriol for society for the government. You certainly do see a lot of anti-vaxxers in our community. <laughs> um, and there's a weird sort of Venn diagram between anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers, and that's the yoga teacher. The same, you know, political marketing also. Yeah. I was just going to say our friend Eric Davis, he lives in San Francisco. He has a book out called High Weirdness. Um, and he says, you know, it may start out as a game, but it ends up as a whole world. You know, and I think that's been something really interesting to think about when we think about, uh, like both of you are speaking to, you know, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, QAnon. I think um, these things that sort of start out, you know, you're just sort of curious, oh, what happens if I sort of follow this this thread, as they call it, the breadcrumbs, right? Um, mm. and, and then it actually, there's a word called uh, apophenia, which means sort of seeing patterns where there perhaps aren't oh. any, you know, so yeah. you're making these connections, um, you're seeing connections that are erroneous, but they, they're, they're very real. They're there. They're, it's undeniable, right? But, but they're not causal. Um, so this idea that, that something sort of starts out all fun and games, you know, but it ends up as a whole world. And what we're left with is this very cult-like, um, ethos and and it can be quite harmful it is really harmful in a lot of the cases that we're seeing i mean we can also peel away not too far from that is also our 
you know, what we imagined when we first started doing yoga and when we go to Mysore and when we get in a room and we find ourselves sort of open to uh, what's actually happening. And it's very sensitive to some collective ideologies. And uh, there's, it's not that far away. In fact, there's still live action role playing that's happening in our yogic uh, ideologies that is, has some similarities and draws into, I mean, the whole LARP thing, the whole QAnon thing brings some of those ideas into question, like what is a guru? Um, what mm-hmm. is our collective? What are we aiming towards? What are we sharing? Mm-hmm. Spiro, are, are you suggesting that, uh, this is really fascinating, are you suggesting that there's an element of live action role play when we interact with someone like like Sharat uh, or our yoga teacher at home? Yes. I, think, I mean, we're, it, it's the same role playing that's happening when we play our, our parents, you know, and, you know, uh, are we actually our parents? No, we kind of, we kind of jump into the role when we have a child and we're making it up as we go along, we're doing our best, but there's still some live action, you know, it's actually cosplay. There's a level of performativity always, you know, a level of taking on, like Spiro said, the role and, and a, a certain a certain position, right? And you're a different person on the yoga mat when Sharat is teaching and you're a different person than when you're at the head of the room doing the teaching, right? We play these different roles and assume these different roles, and there's, positions. There's anthropology that can help and, you know, talk about some of the things that go that we go through when we're practicing yoga um there's a there's a a a triangle that we've been referring to occasionally that's made by uh jamie wheel now jamie wheel is a popularizer of it but the what's the yoga oh victor turner victor turner and he he says that there's this like ecstasis that happens which we all can sort of point our finger at our ecstasis of first getting involved with Ashtanga yoga, for example. And Ashtanga yoga for me was largely better than the rest or most appealing to me because there were no words. <laughs> you were in a room <laughs> quiet and, you know, you didn't have to conflate a whole bunch of things. You didn't have to hear somebody say platitudes that didn't actually make sense if you talk to them in person. Um, but you're mm-hmm. sensitive to it and you're like, oh gosh, I'm feeling really sensitive. That kind of makes a little bit of sense. You know, you're, so we're in a sensitive mm-hmm. place during these ec- ecstatic moments. Um, you know, we become sensitive and then there's catharsis. And in this sort of catharsis, um, we, 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 make, we make changes. We do healing. We, uh, we deal with our, our injuries, our, our traumas, our, our ways, our of, wounds, of being. And then we have a communitas of, of a space with like-minded beings to transform and reestablish uh, a matrix. So these being sort of That's points of, of a really um, meaningful community, a meaningful culture, right. an ethical culture. Right. So what can happen in these situations is they, they can be pushed in various directions. They can go AWOL, which is how we see a lot of cults, for example, or mm-hmm. even corporate ideology. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a Facebook, for example. Or, yeah. yeah. 
that's it's what's interesting about that is how it, at a certain point if you're if you, if your if your personality is performed it starts to um bring up serious questions about what the self is mm-hmm. and is the self a personality if the personality is malleable and not permanent then what the fuck are you mm-hmm that's fascinating, and it's actually one of our main points of contemplation between Erica and myself. Erica is right now a master student in London. Uh, and I think you said you were in Taos, Spiro. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is part of today's world. Not only that, but your real focus is on spirit possession in uh, Sri Lanka and India. And spirit possession is... Uh, is a way of looking, and uh, Frederick Smith argues in his tome, which is amazing. It's an incredible book, The Self-Possessed. The Self-Possessed. He argues that most of the readings of all the uh, old Indian texts are wrong, or at least not really establishing how prevalent possession was in the basic idea of the self. Mm-hmm. Um and so he thinks that any idea of grandiose uh, of ourself is missing the point, that actually a lot of the work was done to be possessed by great beings. Yeah. That aren't, you know, the, the being that we were born into. To uh, make way having, for spirit. To make way for great spirits and great forces. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, fundamentalist Christians who would agree that that is the purpose of yoga. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's, also, there's also a lot of fundamentalists, or fu- there's a lot of Christians that also work towards spirit possession in, in, in voodoo-type situations. Yeah. Uh, right. And not that, you know, not that it's this or that. Yeah, but Bob that- Doto is a person that's an Ashtanga teacher in Brooklyn. That's What's his name? Bob Doto, is, he's, he teaches Ashtanga-ish stuff. And Eddie had him on the show, too, but he's an old friend. Uh, but he has a book that came out recently called Sitting, in, Sitting with Spirits, which is about the Christian, okay. which is about Christians and spirit possession. Erica, I interrupted you. Oh, that's okay. I was, I was just saying, you know, it's, it's not that it, it is definitively this or it is definitively not that. I think it, it just gives us another perspective and another way to think about what the self is or is not, Russell, like you said, you know, like, well, yeah. if it's not this, if, if it's not this, maybe it's this, you know, um, different ways of exploring that and investigating that both textually, personally, historically, you know, philosophically. It's a vast subject. Absolutely. (laughs) It's maybe the question, who am I? Right. When when we were emailing you, um, you brought up something that I I was really uh, intrigued by in terms of of notions of of self and and what we project onto the world of of what is real and what isn't real. Uh, You had mentioned the tarot. And the and yoga, which was was fascinating to me because I, I don't even think Harmony knew this, but I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised that my mother is um, uh, someone who, as far back as I can remember, had always kept a bound copy of the tarot and, and mm. slept with it to improve its energy. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> very important to her in, 
and I have some familiarity with it because of mm-hmm. that for some reason. Um, for, for me, the tarot at its heart was presenting a, a person. I would and I would love for you to tell me exactly what it is, uh, but but at its heart, it seemed to be something where it's presenting you with a, a sequence of images in a particular pattern. And then it's at that point that we project onto these images, like the hanged man, um, a, a sense of uh, in, inspiration or insight is like, ah, this is what I've been hiding for myself. These are, mm-hmm. these are stories or that are, that I've been suppressing for self-preservation. And now I'm suddenly, uh, aware of it in, in the say the same way that this happens in our Ashtanga yoga practice, you go along in a practice and suddenly a pose that, um, has no, um, that isn't anything, but what it is. But when you do it, it causes all sorts of awareness of, of, of your body's, um, peculiarities of your mind's pattern, something like Kapatasana, suddenly you're thrust into a situation like, ah, this is who I am. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm, um, and I, I wonder if, if you could speak to, to us about your interest in the tarot and, and if, if any of that is, is uh, accurate at all. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. I think that both yoga and the tarot are um, more so than actual meanings encoded in any one card or in any one pose. They're messengers, right? They're ways of seeing. Um, so both both of them um, offer this perspective, this mirror, opportunities to see ourselves, our relationships, um, and the world from a different perspective. Um, I think that often we look to yoga for the answer, and that can certainly be true with the tarot as well. We we practice this sort of divination for, you know, an oracular effect, right? Some sort of oracle mm-hmm. uh, telling. But um, really, both are, are these transformational tools. Um, that allow us to see, you know, the, the magic of ourselves. Um, yeah, the, with, with a, a pose, we may wrestle with something and reveal something through our own toil and, and that fine line between effort and surrender. Whereas uh, the tarot puts our notion of transformation before us like a screen um, and allows us to look at it with that sort of distance of, of a space that of which we are looking at from the outside, seeing it reflected. Um, and that the idea of the gaze is one of our main uh, points of discussion between yoga and tarot. Uh, where is our gaze? I mean, mm. nowadays, that's one of the tristanas. Um, um, it's one of the three places uh, where we stand in yoga. And it's actually one of the main things that I think is important with Ashtanga yoga um, is, is the Tristana. And our gaze in this case is, uh, is the question. Mm. Where are we gazing? What does it entail? Um, is it just a toe? Is it a hanged man? And then there's like things like the uh, hanged man uh, is also like a you know, gesture. It's a physical gesture, which is a lot like a yoga pose. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have some sort of mimicry that's going on with that as well. Like 
um, are we going to embody this? How is this going to uh, change us? How are we going to do that? And how is it going to do us? And mm. what, what does it carry? And I think just speaking to what Spiro was saying about the gaze, you know, I really think that our attention, our focus is one of the last things that we have that's actually ours, you know, <laughs> um, and that we can reclaim, right? And and so much of the world is about trying to take our attention away from us, you know, pulling it in towards Instagram feeds or, you know, pulling it out here to, we're consumers, right? And we're, we're most productive in capitalist society when we're consuming. Um, but, but if we can pull away from that and, and claim our attention for ourselves, which I think is what we're doing in practice, right? We set aside the phone, we set aside life for that hour, half hour, whatever it is that we can squeak out. Um, and our focus is our own. Our, our, we can put the gaze inward on, you know, whatever it is that's going on inside. Maybe it's stillness, maybe it's lots of waves. Um, and we really get that time for ourselves. And I think it's similar with the tarot, that we we get to put our gaze and our attention, our focus into this this practice and and both are sort of these these ways of connecting to something divine and sacred um they might be mundane as well right but there's the mm -hmm. profundity of the of the profane but, i really liked what you said about the gaze being sort of our last the last stronghold of ourself and and maybe you know back to the question of who am i maybe that actually is all that i am Work if we're all this pure consciousness or pure awareness, you know, and everything else is is role play or a put on personality. Then the gaze truly is um, sort of a very deep connection, I guess, to the essence of of consciousness within us. Mm. And it goes both ways. It's the gaze we can you can you know externally focus it, and you can also internally focus it. You know, and I think that's that's quite unique, you know. It's a bit as above, so below, which is uh, used in both old tantric texts as well as uh, the alchemical texts of the Middle Ages. Um, there's also an idea that uh, we saw in some of the texts, in particular that small essay on gra uh, gravity's rainbow in the tarot. There's a great quote in there that has stuck with us, which is... Uh, there is no final transcendence, only endless transfiguring, mm. which uh, uh, mm -hmm. Pynchon used the tarot to write Gravity's Rainbow. And so, oh, did he really? So there's a lot of tarot references and Kabbalistic references throughout the whole thing, and a mm. lot of drugs also. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I must say that, you know, Tea and chai is also a drug. So drugs in some way are part of the whole experience from tarot, from uh, the yoga sutras to uh, our experience being alive, that somehow humans and drugs are part of the whole transfiguration. They allow us the space. And nowadays in popular, in our popular culture, people are using uh, mushrooms and ketamine for therapy, like mm -hmm. yoga in a sense. That's you know, something that you said to me once, Spiros, that always <laughs> stuck with me, that that anything we consume is a mind-altering substance. <laughs> I, 
It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the glaze as well. Like what, what we're consuming, we don't just consume with our mouths, right? We consume with our eyes and with our ears and with our nose, you know, all of our mm. sense organs. We might also include the imagination as a faculty. Yeah. You know, it's all about consumption and how that affects us. And I, and I do think that then the way that we can mitigate that and its effects on us or revel in it is through that attention, is through that focus, is through that pulling it back to ourselves, you know, reflecting our own divine light and maybe consciousness, like you say, harmony, or, you know, choosing to say, I'm not going to consume that, you know, I'm going to step away from that, you know, and and that Mm -hmm. gets to be. That's true. A tool as we walk through our days. Yeah, it's probably our um, a uh, what do I want to say? Our responsibility as citizens might be to to start being very critical as to what we consume. Mm. Uh, recently, Richard Freeman came on the uh, came on the show, and he had handed me a book once, and he and he handed me the book, and he said, "This is." going to blow your mind (laughs) Um, and i was like okay that's exciting and it was um it was a book called the light at the center uh by swami agnahanda parati uh, a swiss vedantin and a sanskrit savant from a young Mm. early age like like seven or eight years old and i opened it up and i was my mind was blown uh this is a fellow who writes about the mystic experience and what and tries to define it, uh, to talk about it, its shape and its color, its texture, the zero experience. Mm. And throughout the book, it's peppered with personal references to LSD and sex and yoga, which was astonishing. I'd, I'd seen this kind of person write about this kind of thing before. And mm. I want to know if you, if, you, if you know the book, but I also... Um, I want to ask you about the zero experience and some of our, our teachers that we've had. Well, first of all, I haven't read the book, but I was intrigued by it when you mentioned it in the email. I totally want, want to read it. So, What I'd like to know is, is I have a, a, a feeling that you guys are very familiar with the zero experience, the mystic experience. It seems like it's very much a fabric to your personalities and to your daily exchanges and your your walk in life that you are touched by it quite strongly. And I wanted to know if, if on meeting, uh, say Sri Kepatabi Joyce or, or Arsharat Joyce, if that was, if that's, a, if you've had that feeling that that zero experience has also shaped their lives or shaped your experiences with them. I think that if we mean by the zero experience, um, how are we defining that exactly? I don't think either the of us about that term, the so zero experience. The mystic, the mystic experience, coming, uh, taking two things, one and zero, and making them one. Mm. So con- or zero. Like our, or zero. <laughs> where our own identity is, is not like obfuscating the experience, for example. Sort of the clashes. Right. So in samadhi, there is no experience of samadhi. Mm-hmm. There's only you what you kind of, you know, wake up afterwards. Like, oh what the, what just happened to me? I feel a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I think you yeah. could also explain it like holding multiple perspectives 
as a unity. Right. Right. Um, In both cases, you know, I'm not a a steady state person, um, but those type of of, of, uh, experiences are sort of uh, part of the work. I mean, I think, uh, which quote, which is like the fourth verse of the fourth book of uh, the Yoga Sutras, Mm. um, where basically we're just cleaning up. (laughs) And when Mm. the levy breaks, the levy breaks. (laughs) And that's, you know, all we can really do is sort of tidy the uh, field for for the, you know, using the farmer as the metaphor. Like basically, we're just toiling the soil, and that that feeds into the uh, to the spirit possession type of work. It feeds into grace. Tarot. Uh, tarot is basically as a medium, or you know, as as a yoga pose. I mean, we're reading a lot of the old texts in Erica's classes, and mudras are basically instruments for resonating with frequencies or or. Uh, or ways of mind and uh, energies. And so in that sense, the best that we can do is sort of clean up and, you know, tend to the field. But grace happens on its own. Mm. Um, And And it's always available, you know, and I think it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of our conversation about sort of living on that threshold and living in the liminal, you know, and sort of having access to the the sacred, even in the... In the purely mundane, which is a, a cone. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also sort of, there's a great magic in the in the super mundane. It's like not grandiose, that is so normalized, so normal, not normalized, that is actually not normalized because it's, uh, it's, its frequency is hard to like hold on to, just the banality of being. Mm. in a sense and that is actually also a riddle so i think you know we get we are like everyone else we get you know we have like there's money stuff that comes up there's sex stuff that comes up there's all the whole cultural trope and i think uh patabi joyce and sharat um all are are holders of a space you know, um, frequencies, you know, clock, you know, clock people that timekeepers, timekeepers <laughs> that just, set up, that, that just are, are, are beacons that, that set out a pulse that we can tune into. And in that sense, uh, it's a great burden of them and we're very thankful. Um, but anything else from that is our own doing, is our own sort of, and it, I think it's really great that we have a sort of frequency that's outside of our normal ideas of ourselves and what we're doing in the world to share a space with others anywhere in the world mm-hmm. that um, we can tune into that frequency of uh, what we call Ashtanga Yoga and share it together. To me, it feels like a little bit like a, like a song, like just a popular folk song. <laughs> that we don't know the tune to and we can play along somewhere between that and a mantra i don't think you know it vacillates for me as it's just sort of a folk song you know when we come together that's what we can kind of share or like a mantra of something that the more intense that you actually surrender to it the like resonant frequency takes over um i think it vacillates between that 
And that's such a transpersonal energy that you're speaking to, Spiro. You know, it sort of is beyond any one individual, any one fallible human. It's this transpersonal experience um, that we all are a part of, that we all contribute to, tap into our lucky recipients of, you know, that we continue to uh, beat to every day. And that's such a special thing. Yeah, when we opened our school, uh, we actually used that idea as the sort of like the that that shared space is the membrane. The practice itself is the mycelium of, uh, of our work. And from that fruit bodies happen and pop up little mushrooms of other things and beings. Um, so it's this network, right? This mycelial network that we're, that we're creating and a part of, and we all nurture each other and care for each other, hopefully right in this reciprocity, and mutual aid and care. Yeah, the mushrooms are nice, but it's the fabric of the mushrooms from which we all sprout that we share, and which is actually the girth. Mm. Yeah, this shared rhythm. I'm sorry. I was just going to to say that the mycelium network became very important to me with the new iteration of Star Trek on CBS, which I think we we should all share. Uh, <laughs> we've actually heard other people recommend to we, we see it, but we haven't watched it. We haven't it. seen it yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, the the mycelium network is the single most important um, property within the show that allows for uh, transportation and mm. course, Star Trek. Nothing could be more important to, to Star Trek than transportation. There's a human sense of. Uh, of a mycelial network that is like Wi-Fi that is actually not seen. And uh, like Kabbalistically, there's a, what they say, a heavenly tree grows downward in Harry Smith's Mm -hmm. words. But uh, I can see it a bit as a mycelium that is uh, global, but it's, it's coming from the heavens down and we are the mushroom bodies of that shared space. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, I'm sorry. I, I wonder, I, just to I, to close, I, I, I'd really like to hear, unless Harvey, you, did you have something to say? I'm, I'm sorry. I'd really like to, to hear, like, blow by blow, um, what happened to you? Where were you and what, and what room were you in and what were you doing when you, when you had your stroke? And, and because it seems... Well, I don't. I didn't. I didn't meet you before. I didn't really know you very well before the stroke. But maybe nothing's changed at all afterward. They say that things have changed. I came back to the same body, <laughs> which I remember traveling around. I felt this big call once. I was once I got back and I was alive. I like drove around the country to visit all these old friends and family, and I. They were very excited that I was back to my old self and I felt very despondent from that because I felt like I was wearing a coat that they were like, that's a nice coat. (laughs) 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 And not seeing the being at all after the being like worked so hard to get back into the earth and share light and love. And we are sharing it, but you're only noticing (laughs) the coat. (laughs) Interestingly, Spiro, you know, when you first had your stroke, you lost words 
And so he, you know, you didn't, you weren't able to speak. You could understand words, but you couldn't find the words to speak. And you often had a difficult time understanding simple words that people would ask you, which I think is really this, this beautiful thing, especially now, because words are so important to you and to us and to our work and to the lost angels, right? To, to angels yeah. as messengers. So we did change our name from Los Angeles Yoga Club to Lost Angels. Uh, oh, and I see. So that's been yeah. part of our new theme and new ideology and angelology that we inhabit. But it's a long story about the uh, the stroke. But a couple highlights from it are that I was up till the wee hours the night before. It was a Saturday night. Uh, it was November 2010. Um, I was up with my. He's kind of my guru. <laughs> it's a weird scene and fun and beautiful. But uh, I think we were throwing chairs at uh, like one in the morning talking about enlightenment. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't quite hear with, with whom? <laughs> I didn't give a name. Uh, oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Go on then. Yeah, that's it's good to know when you're not going to give a name and then just go on. Uh, I mean, his name is Danny, but he's no, he's a nobody. He, it's that's a, a okay. whole different story and scene. Uh, although he does talk about darshan yoga, which was his scene, sort of uh, fabric okay. of the world and what they have contributed darshan yoga. Um, so you're throwing about, chairs with your guru. Yeah, yeah, in the morning, in the late late hours. And then I went to home, went to sleep, woke up, and was practicing good old-fashioned, no frills, Ashtanga yoga, <laughs> you know. And as standard on Sundays, I was doing, you know, intermediate. <laughs> and, yeah, that's the rule. Uh, like you know. Yeah, I was doing Mayurasana, and I got a really bad headache. Mm-hmm. And then... I was like, usually I can, if I, if I get some strong intensity like this, I can just kind of work through it. I just like keep going. But I was like, nope, nope, that's not what's happening today. <laughs> so I laid down, I rolled over, and it was the next day. Oh. oh wow. Period. Last this was the morning of the Sunday, and then it was Monday. And then it was Monday, and... I was feeling pretty sick. I didn't know what was going on. I looked down to my iPhone a little and, you know, weeks before I had, uh, I had decided I would write in my journal and the only goal of writing in the journal was to watch the mind. It was a sort of spy versus spy technique of just <laughs> transcribing everything, whatever it is, you know, nasty, not nasty, nonsense, whatever, just following the words of the mind and trying to transcribe. And um, that I decided to do three weeks before this whole thing happened. And um, that morning, I still, I, there's a record of me waking up and it was sort of nonsense. Um, and I texted people, but I couldn't really, my brain wasn't working right, but I didn't notice it as my brain not working right. I started texting nonsense to friends. I drove my car to the car and got some food, you know, to cook at home. I went back, I cooked it, and then I fell asleep. You were in Brooklyn at this point? What's that? Santa Fe. You were in Santa Fe. Okay, you were in Santa Fe. And you went back and you cooked the food 
and then you went to sleep. For a whole nother day. Whoa. And uh, I guess I started texting people, and people started texting me, and I was responding in nonsense. And eventually... According to friends, he was saying, you know, I think I have an infected tooth, you know, or, or I, like, just not very coherent and trying to understand what was happening, but texting people. I did text right. people. A little bit of reaching out. And uh, it was the next day, so it was Tuesday, and eventually someone just knocked on the door and took me mm-hmm. through Mm -hmm. wow sweet friend named mary and uh at first they didn't know what was going on and eventually they uh they took me to the mri and uh and then they were like oh gosh oh gosh you need to you you need surgery and so um the front the my frontal lobe was filled with blood yeah and they got me prepped, but then they did another MRI and they noticed that it wasn't getting any worse. As if like the time before of sleep was my own body's homeostatic, you know, wrestling and compensating. And it was probably the best thing that I could have done is just sleep for two days. Um, and so uh, the doctor at the time was like, you know what? We're not going to do surgery. We're, you know, right now it's in the best possible place. It's not getting any worse. If it starts to get worse, we're going to do surgery. If not, we're just going to watch it. And, uh, you know, if I was in New York or LA, I think the doctors would have been too worried about the possibility of something happening and mm-hmm. sued. But in Santa Fe, they were a little bit more laid back about <laughs> the whole thing. And a couple mm-hmm. days later, I went home. But while I was at the hospital, I was like, I am dead. You know, subjectively, I was feeling like, not only I am dead, but like I said before, earlier on in this conversation, I'm psyched that I'm dead. Mm. <laughs> like, I, you know, I had done all, I had read all the old texts, all the old tantric texts, all the like ways of looking at this life as a, with a disdain, like, can hear my hands like wiping away all of it, cleansing the dirtiness of this world and uh, having this sort of like discerned disgust with like the whole affair like enlightenment was my only sort of goal and uh, the pie in my face was that it was there all along in some way um, that actually it was just my own pretense of, of what I was doing you know, like doing Ashtanga yoga, doing all these practices to sort of clean my boat, you know, sort of like polish the wood. You know, I was so into how exact perfection my pose was, my mantras, my breath, and that kind of all washed away. I mean, I still have that as part of me, but this that was no longer my goal. All that washed away with I felt like I was just in this like uh ocean of bliss and tears and emotion and just waves of all these like wild animals that I couldn't actually see that were my friends and were spirits and were my whole life and they were just sort of passing for me and I wept and I laughed and I you know lasted for weeks and weeks um 
but the, it was the fireflies themselves, the beings of light that actually really pulled me back. And like, I was like, yes, that's what I'm here for. That's what I, that's what is, is important. And now you have that and it, whether anything else, if you're doing this, then you're doing your work. The speech. Um, yeah. The thing was, is that I also did lose my speech. So afterwards, I, um, I, I could say things, but it was really hard. The first day after I got back, I would write in my journal, and it was pure nonsense. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But I did for an hour because that was my sort of goal. But so I wrote an hour of nonsense. I still have my old journals, uh, which is the whole. Uh, Those first few study. days aren't aren't even just. I mean, nonsense implies that there's maybe some words, but it it was like you know scribbles. Yeah, in a line like. Mm -hmm. like Twirls and twirls and yeah, she's seen my, maybe my a dot study. or two. <laughs> <laughs> and then it became short words, like two letter, three letter words. And I like two or three letters in, I would forget what I had started with and I would keep going. Yeah. And so like the whole brain was recalibrating, reconstituting, and um and I had to go to speech therapy. Um and it wasn't the articulation, it was actually just the enunciation, just remembering. It was really like going to a surrealist dinner party <laughs> where the the library of words was the dinner and you could appreciate the words as they were fed to you and you, you would know exactly what was going on. But you personally, Spiro the ego, couldn't go grab that word and hide behind it and be clever and snarky and biting, all those things that my my naive, uh, fragile self, the actual self, uh, hid behind. And all that sort of had to go. All that stuff washed away. And I had to recalibrate a being or, you know, be here without being able to do that. And it was a blissful time. It was a luminous time. I was like thinking, gosh, if I'm like this my whole life, are you going to be okay, Spiro? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll find a way. It'll be all right. And uh, hmm. I felt like the uh, uh, what's her name that had the stroke, the stroke of genius, uh, Jill Bolte Taylor, yeah. and then uh, Ram Das had a stroke. And I felt like I was among good people. And in a sense, I was a yogi and I met head on with the goal of my yoga, which was grace. And from mm -hmm. then, the, the levy broke and uh you know, only logos and wash away with feeling and spirit and beings. And, you know, slowly after years, you know, old habits come back and your old self, you sort of forget that you're just wearing a coat and, you know, all that stuff sort of, you know, trickles back. Mm. Um, but there's also a being in you that's different, that's gone on a journey and come back to yourself. And things are different. Erica was saying this morning that, you know, she still gets people that tell her, well, you're lucky you get Spiro 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> the upgraded version. <laughs> a more mellow, more mellow person. Mm -hmm. That's Ram Dass talked about the gift that it was all through the rest of his life. It was the stroke was a gift. Right. And after very, the stroke, very, very much, 
very, very much. And I still will find times, depending on the people I'm talking to, context, the beings around me, the intensity, and uh, all those kind of factors uh, are involved now in my like going through the cupboards of language to find the right word for something. Although there's also a time when I was recalibrating and I would be going on long walks in Santa Fe trying to just exercise my mind because I was worried. You know, I had to exercise my mind to get the words back. And I'd try to remember directors' names and things like that. And occasionally, <laughs> occasionally, I would not remember the director's name, but my lips would say it. And I'd be like, oh. It's there. <laughs> there it is. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so that's neuro neuroplastic rerouting was in effect. But I think it also brought this really creative way of having to work with language and address language that I think um, is part of the, the Spiro 2.0, right? I mean, I love the story of people would say, how are you? And you would say, how? What does how mean? You know, yeah. and you would, <laughs> I have to look it up and be like, by what means or mechanism? <laughs> so then my question yeah. is, answer would be you know people how are you by, by, by grace itself <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that's a joke that I, I would often make with the teachers is they, they would say um, you know how are you feeling and I would say oh I feel things with my body that's how I do it. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Let's talk about how we use our bodies to feel things, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Very much. Yeah. yeah. In one some way, how we all got together. And also in a way without words. Right. Right. Pre-language. Right. Yeah, I was also sort of a dub DJ in Taos at at early on. And so dub I liked also because it actually has no words. It's words are only mm -hmm. Mimetic echoes. Um, wow. Um, yeah, that, uh, I just, I'm sorry, I just got lost in my uh, rave, Chicago rave day. And I just. <laughs> I mean, we, were all, we were all dub reggae, post dub reggae. <laughs> I I just really want to thank you all for this tremendous generosity of time and space and language and uh, I'd I'd love to bask more in your vibration. Uh, I would. And I know that you had a closing ceremony, but I think we should probably do a little bit of of housework. And can you tell us, you know, your website and things like that, where people could find you and bask in your in magnificence. Oh, well, thank you guys so much for sharing this time with us. It's such a joy to connect. Our website is layoga.club. And that is also our Instagram, layoga.club. And our Facebook, layoga.club. We're occasionally on Twitter, layoga underscore club. Yeah, I'm mostly on Twitter. She's... I'm mostly off social media these days, but I'm active if you email us. Yeah. <laughs> Practice at layoga.club. Yeah. You can find everything there. And we also send out an almanac on the new and full moons. Which is um, our, our a lot of our real work and thinking. Yeah, that's really where we work out a lot of our ideas and current thinkings and inspirations. And it's really just, it, it it's where we pour a lot of our creative spark yeah so um if people are curious about that they can find us at layc.substack.com 
So L-A-Y-T-S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And it'll be in the show notes, so no worries. <laughs> they don't need to take notes. <laughs> but those are really, really precious emails. They're full of such amazingly interesting little gems. And I only wish I had more time to really <laughs> their full depth. They are dense. <laughs> they can be dense. But hopefully you just take what take yeah. what works and leave the rest. Take yeah. what you have time I, to read. I and trust exactly that, that I'm getting what I need. <laughs> the, the, um, what do you call it? The, the book references when they, when you make, um, the syllabus is also like the, that's time. You got to invest in the books that they recommend. <laughs> and art, there's articles, there's movies, there's TV series. <laughs> there's a lot of things to explore. <laughs> we don't need to do it linearly. You know, that we believe no. wholeheartedly in bibliomancy and mediomancy. Like just yeah. dip in yeah. and see what's shown to you. Yeah. Open the book, just open the page, it. see what, see what speaks to you. Do it liminally. I love it. Nice. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for thinking of us and inviting us into your shared space and your curiosity and your heart. Um, It's great to hear your voices and resonate a little with you. I still always think of the hand with all the fingers and all of us being the fingers on a similar hand. And, Mm -hmm. uh, And yeah, let's just do it home all together and uh, close it. Thank you. I think you should hit the gong again. Yeah, that'd be nice. (laughs) You should definitely do that. Uh, Three, two, one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.